0: We're coming back. All right. Awesome. Well, I I love hearing the chatter of of, of people connecting with one another. And if you're at home, we really want to invite you to come join us here for a live service where you can interact with people in the flesh again and uh, be able to meet new people and connect with us here. And for those of you who uh, have, have met someone new, I encourage you after our service to connect again outside, just continue your conversations. It's a great opportunity for you to get to know one another better. At this point in our service, we are now transitioning to the reading of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. And we are starting our new series today in 2 Corinthians, a wonderful book about a growing church in a big multi-ethnic city, similar to Toronto, similar to Toronto. And this church wrestled with what it meant to be a beautiful community in a city with often opposing ethics and views. And uh, for here... Today, Dan's going to walk us through not 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians, the, the, the second book that we have in our Bible, and he's going to help us understand uh, what it means for us today as a church. To help us with the reading of God's Word, I want to now invite Scott up to, to help us, and we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Scott.
1: Okay, the reading for today is from 2 Corinthians 1, 1 to 11. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God that is in that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia grace to you and peace from God our father and the lord Jesus Christ blessed be the god and father of our lord Jesus Christ the father of mercies and comfort of all and god of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of all the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God, who raises the dead. He delivers us from s- such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Spirit of
2: God. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, those of you who are online. Welcome, those of you who are here. We are glad you are here wherever you are in your journey of life and faith. We are discussing a book, a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. It is called 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is a book about pain. It was written by an apostle in pain to a church in pain. It is a book about how to deal with weakness and afflictions. It is a book about how church leaders should treat and lead their congregations and how congregations should treat their leaders. It's a book about how to think the best of each other and what happens when you don't. It is a book about true spiritual power, power that comes through weakness. And it is a book in the end, primarily about the surpassing worthiness of Jesus Christ. The whole point of the book is this, life is hard, but Jesus is worth it. Now we get to our specific context here. Paul is writing to a church that has mocked him and doubted him, had contempt for him because he was not an impressive person in the way he spoke or in the way that he presented himself. They'd ignored Jesus' teachings about how to live a beautiful and holy life. Paul dealt with those issues in a blistering first letter to the Corinthians. Then between that first letter and this one we call his second letter, Paul actually visited this church in Corinth and wrote them a very stern letter, as he calls it. That visit and that letter were painful. The visit was filled with pain and misunderstanding. So much pain, apparently, that though Paul had promised them that he would come back, upon reflection later on, he decided not to. He could not handle the pain, and he thought, probably neither could they. But the church misinterpreted his motives for not coming. They saw him as a liar, lacking integrity not qualified to be a leader. And so we face this situation, pain, pain all around. And here, writing in pain to a church that openly questions his qualifications as a spiritual leader, Paul begins this letter with this stunningly hopeful, ridiculously positive and comforting perspective. Paul here gives us three enduring truths about afflictions pain and the reality of life, firstly, God will comfort you in every affliction if you're a Christian. Secondly, God will use your afflictions. Thirdly, how you can respond rightly to afflictions. God will comfort you. God will use you. Here's how to respond rightly. Firstly, God will comfort you in every affliction. If you've got a Bible or a phone or a Bible app, keep the page because we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians somewhat closely. But after the first two two verses where he gives a rather standard greeting, he gets into the meat of it by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. I'll stop there for a moment. Because here in verse 3, Paul is saying something rather incredible that in all of our afflictions, no matter how deep, how dark, how difficult, God comforts His people. That word affliction is a broader word. It can mean tribulation. It can mean troubles. It can mean persecutions. The generic meaning is something which puts pressure on you. And in all of them, God can comfort His people. And the question we have this morning for all of us is, do we believe that? Some afflictions, some pain, some trouble seems so dark, so wrong, so deep that no, we really struggle to believe that. Skeptics often say when these kinds of tragedies break out in large quantities, they say, where is your God in all of this? And Christians more privately ask the same question, where is my God? in all of this. Paul, I think, recognizes this natural reaction that we have to these kinds of afflictions because some pain is so powerful that God seems nowhere to be found. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we must admit when real pain and affliction hit us, we all wonder where God is. And so Paul says, I get you. But let me give you two reasons why despite your pain, You can feel the presence of a God of comfort. Firstly, you can feel His comfort because of who God is. Paul here uses a phrase that's quite rare uh, in the New Testament. He calls this Father, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That is who the gospel says God is. The God who is, is this kind of a God. This is not the god of any other religion that I have ever heard of. Buddhism and Hinduism, they have an impersonal karma at the center of their religious system that blindly and impersonally responds to your actions with appropriate counteractions, often mysterious. You may find yourself in affliction and you're left to figure out, is there something I did in my past or my parents' past that is causing this reaction of karma? Islam has an all-powerful but unknowable God who is inscrutable, revealing Himself only in His commands and His calls to submission. Secular thinking has an impersonal universe that arbitrarily spits out random events. So, afflictions and pain that you have are just the set of cards you've been given for no reason. Here, on the other hand, in the Gospel, we meet an infinitely personal God whose love for us has no limits, whose compassion for us has no boundaries, whose affection for us has no end, so much so that he sends his beloved son to become a human, to be with us. He sends Jesus to take on full humanity, to stand with us in our affliction, and then he sends him to the cross to stand in for us in our guilt and moral wrong. And he pays the debt that we deserve to pay for our sins. That's why Paul can say God, God the Father, the God who sent His Son, the God who agreed with His Son before the foundation of the earth to send His Son to do this for us, that God is the Father of mercies because that Son, Jesus, is mercy incarnate and His Father then is the Father of all mercies. And the God of all comfort. Scholars generally think that um, Paul is probably referring back to a certain part of the book of Isaiah where God comforts His people. It starts in Isaiah 40 and verse 1 of that chapter says, "'Comfort, comfort my people,' says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Jewish people generally thought God had punished them for their sins when they read that. We now know from Isaiah that he was pointing to Jesus who would take the punishment for us. And so Paul is saying, this is the God who is. I know how affliction makes you feel. What you feel is real. And what feels real may not necessarily be what is true. Real and true are different. Though your pain is very real to you, and it feels like it's the truth to you, it isn't the truth. It isn't even your truth because there's no such thing as your truth. There is only the truth. And the truth is this, there's a God who exists an infinitely loving, personal God, who is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, you can come to Him. He waits for you. I remember reading uh, C.S. Lewis years ago, an adult convert to Christianity, professor at Cambridge and Oxford, and a Christian who said these words, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's the God who is, the God who's trying to speak to us because He's the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. But secondly, God comforts us, it says here, because we share in the sufferings of Jesus. Let me finish the next phrase. It says this, verse five, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You hear that? When you become a Christian, according to the gospel, you are united to Jesus spiritually, but actually. You and Jesus become one in a very real way. You are in union together. Therefore, the sufferings that Jesus has are yours and the sufferings that you have as a Christian are his. And Paul is saying the afflictions that you are experiencing as Christians are part of the continuing suffering of Jesus that tells the story to the world of a suffering and dying and rising savior who holds out his arms to the world and in his sufferings, pours out his love and forgiveness to the world. So stop for a minute. Let's meditate. When you are suffering, your sufferings are not some random meaningless pain in a meaningless universe. They're not some random karma for something wrong you or your ancestors may have done sometime in the past there is something that you are sharing with the God of the universe and His beloved Son, with Jesus, the person who suffered and died and rose for you and then united you to Himself. He's experiencing it with you. He's right there. And Paul the Apostle experienced this even before he became a Christian. As a Pharisee, he was persecuting Christians. That was his job, to persecute this new religion called Christianity. And on the road to a place called Damascus, he heard Jesus speak to him. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you persecute my people, you persecute me. There's a unity between our sufferings and the sufferings of Jesus. Now, this is one of the deepest... And most mysterious teachings of the gospel. No other religion that I know of has anything like this beautiful an identity for suffering. Suffering in every other system of belief is usually reduced to either punishment for past wrongdoing or meaningless, destructive intrusion on my life by an impersonal universe. In the gospel, suffering's neither. It's a meaningful participation in the sufferings of Jesus himself what dignity of identity is given here because Jesus suffered rejected by friends and countrymen mocked humiliated oppressed falsely arrested tortured and then nailed to a cross he suffered and in his suffering is the redemption of the world And when you enter into His sufferings, you enter into the suffering that is the redemption of the world. There is no greater dignity. Here is the great promise of the gospel. When you suffer, you enter into the deepest moments of Jesus' life and death and the deepest meanings of the universe. implications. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I need to ask you this question. Do you have anything in your world and life view that compares to the beauty, and the identity, and the dignity of suffering that is given here? That your suffering is in front of a God of all mercy and comfort who sent His Son and is united with your suffering and is using your suffering to help in the healing and redemptive witness to the world. Amazing. Skeptic, I don't know what your belief system is, but consider the beauty of this one. You will never find anything that dignifies suffering like this. Now, second question I want to ask is to the Christian. When you go through afflictions, do you find it hard to approach God? I know I do. Do you kind of feel God's displeasure is in it somewhere? And therefore, you're a bit reserved. This verse says, there is no reason for you to be reluctant. There's no reason for you to feel distanced. There's no reason for you to do anything like that. In fact, in Hebrews chapter four, the author of Hebrews puts it this way, talking about Jesus, who's waiting for you to come to Him in your suffering. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us go with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need. God will comfort you in your affliction. That's the first point Paul wants to make. There's a second point, though. He won't just comfort you in your affliction. He will use your affliction to comfort others. And here we go back to 2 Corinthians 1, and I will go back to verse 3. He comforts us, verse 4, who comforts us in all afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Do you hear that? It says, the God who comforts us in all our afflictions helps us comfort those in any affliction with the comfort we've received. What is he saying? That God has given his people, the church, God has given the body of Christian believers as the effective means of comforting and caring for and encouraging people to patiently endure sufferings. All of them any of them. I know in my own life, oftentimes, I see suffering so dark and so hurtful to people that I think, oh, that that will take a professional. And indeed, it often means there is professional help needed in those deepest times of trauma. But do you hear this? There's a role for each of us to help all of us by comforting, because comforting is a total robust package. You see this truth? God does not allow suffering for no reason. We just learned that in the first point. It has a divine dignity and purpose. It unites us to God Himself and Jesus' sufferings. But here, a second purpose emerges. That when you've experienced afflictions, it equips you to comfort others who are experiencing afflictions. Isn't that beautiful? This helps us answer the question, how practically do we receive God's comfort when we're afflicted and suffering? Now, there are multiple ways that the New Testament says we receive God's comfort. God speaks to us through His Word. God meets with us in prayer, and we feel comforted by Him. But here in this passage, it says one of the primary ways that we receive God's comfort is from each other. Paul will actually say later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Hint, I was downcast. Yet, I was comforted by the coming of this other leader, Titus. But he goes on, but not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So when Titus came, he comforted Paul, who was downcast. And then when Titus reported how the Corinthians were doing, it was an additional encouragement and comfort to Paul. Paul goes on. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, and I rejoice still more. This is the beautiful community comforting one another. I can't tell you how many times since I became a Christian at Western University so many decades ago, how many times God has used other Christians to, trouble, uh, to comfort me in my troubles, in my afflictions, in my sorrows. I remember becoming a Christian in university, and my parents thinking I joined a cult, and they almost disowned me, and the tension was so deep in my family, but other Christians comforted me and said, endure this with patience. They'll come around, and they have. My father became a Christian shortly before Alzheimer's took him, and my mom has become a Christian and a beautiful one. When I decided to leave the practice of law for ministry. In my first year of ministry, I got burnt out trying to be a a youth pastor, which I was totally unsuited for. The leaders of that church comforted me and said, it's okay, keep going. When I was single and lonely and confused and in my mid-30s and wondering if I would even get married, people came alongside me and said, it's okay. And they comforted me with God's promises and their presence. When I was newly married and they found cancer in my eye, When we, as a couple, later on in our marriage endured a half decade of infertility that seemed to have no medical reason. Later on, just a few years ago, when Sue's father, visiting us from India, had a stroke in our basement and never recovered. Again and again in those dark, dark times, God's people, you acquainted with your own suffering wisely and compassionately came alongside of us and allowed us to see and hear and feel the comfort of God. They were the hands and the feet and the words and the presence of Jesus himself to us, erasing any doubt that God cared. How'd they do it? Well, they sat and listened to our pain, gave dignity to it. They validated the affliction as real, They did not diminish it. They asked good questions. How are you doing? And then a little later, where do you see Jesus and God in this? When times got really dark, they had no other answers. They took me to Jesus in the cross and said, Jesus is with you because he suffered with you and for you. And you're sharing in his sufferings. They read these verses to me and help me to see that God is there despite my pain. That's not the truth. The truth is He's right there. And they prayed for me. Men and women, for all of the blind spots and sins of the church throughout history, and they are many, and we do need to confront them, the church remains God's chosen instrument of comfort of the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus to its own people who are suffering And so if you're here and you're a skeptic and you're investigating Christianity, I must ask of you, do you have such a community to rely upon that can draw near to you in just this way? I talk to skeptics fairly regularly, and skeptics even my age, quite a bit older, with all kinds of relationships, admit they have at most maybe a handful of people that they can go to and be ministered to and comforted in just this way. I have to tell you, my wife and I have dozens of people. Dozens of people that can do that, that can go to the deepest, darkest parts of life with us and comfort us. At least dozens here, much less scattered elsewhere throughout the world. Do you have that, those of you investigating Christianity? You can, because that's what the gospel does. To Christians who are here, are you availing yourself of God's comfort? Are you taking your troubles and afflictions and sharing them with seasoned, godly people who have been afflicted and therefore are equipped to comfort you? Are you? Take advantage. There are, there are a gold mine of seasoned godly veterans, even in this church. I know we're a young demographic, and those of you, probably those of you who are over 45, you feel like you're swamped by the tsunami of younger people. I get it. But there's a gold mine of seasoned leaders and veterans of sufferings and afflictions who are right here, and they're growing in our midst. Those of us who are younger, go to them, seek them out. Those of you who have experienced the afflictions that I'm talking about, you are such a resource. We need you to be God's comfort to those of us who are younger and to all of us. This this is part of the quiet, unseen beauty and glory of this thing called the church, this beautiful community that Jesus has made. This is the reason why we are called to intentional, beautiful community. So, recapping, we've seen two things so far. Firstly, God promises to comfort us. The Father of mercies promises to comfort us. And He comforts us by making us know that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Secondly, God not only promises to comfort us, He will use our afflictions to comfort others. We, as we experience afflictions and are comforted, are a primary vehicle. For passing that comfort on, such great dignity and redemptive meaning is now given to our sufferings. Not only do we find God in it comforting us and sharing His sufferings with us, we find Him then catalyzing us to help and heal others. The world has nothing to compare to this beautiful truth. He will comfort you. He will use you. Finally, let's see how to respond, therefore, to afflictions. Here in the, in, the, in the second major paragraph, Paul gives a biographical sketch of when he was afflicted, and he uses it, I think, to show us how we can understand affliction and respond to it. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. That's the level of affliction he had. Paul. You have to understand, Paul, by this time, had, had been whipped with lashes, the Roman flogging the 39 lashes, at least a few times, such that he almost died. He'd been shipwrecked several times. He had been left in the wilderness, and yet this, this thing he's talking about, and the New Testament scholars don't know exactly which one it is, because we can't figure out an event in the New Testament that accords with this. This is deep despair. He calls it a sentence of death where he felt like, I'm on death row. I've been sentenced to death. I'm just waiting to be executed. That's the level of despair he'd gone to. But Paul said that level of despair had a purpose. See what it says next? He said, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is wild. Paul is saying, Paul, this fantastically famous apostle, this seasoned Christian leader, is saying there's something deep in me. Despite all my trials, all the miracles I've seen, all of the circumstances I've experienced, there still is something deep within me, within us, he meant, that needed to be dealt with. And it was our self-reliance. We rely upon ourselves. You see I don't care how long you've been a Christian or whether you are a Christian at all we share this this deeply embedded dna in our spiritual being that wants to rely upon ourselves no matter how spiritual you are no matter how long you've been a Christian even how well taught you are no matter how many verses of the bible you have memorized this is true of you you naturally incline to rely upon yourself. So Paul says the first principle of dealing with affliction is this, realize that. Admit it. Admit that it's part of why you're feeling such pain. I know that when I'm deeply afflicted, I ask God, why me? I feel alone. Why are you doing this? How come you're not giving me your plan so I know how to respond and help fix the problem? What am I really doing? I'm wanting control. I'm wanting to participate in the solution. I don't want God just to be God. I want to help God. You see, self-reliance is deeply embedded in me. And afflictions and suffering have this healthy purpose. They show it to us. They bring us to the end of our sense of self-control. So that's the first principle. See your own self-dependence and see the danger of it. Secondly, what does he say? To To rely not on that but on God who raises the dead. Here Paul is saying, go to the cross and see what God did in Jesus and let your response be rooted in that, not in what you've done or want to do or are doing, but what a God has done. You see, Paul's saying God allowed His Son, His beloved Son, the Son He loved more than He loves me, sort of. In, in Christ, He loves me as much, but the one He, he loved infinitely, He let Him die. Jesus didn't just face death. He didn't just face the sentence of death that Paul's talking about. He actually had the sentence of death passed upon him, and he actually died. And then God raised him from the dead. You see, what Paul is saying is if you're a Christian, your affliction that you face may be dark enough that it takes your life. But even death itself The ultimate enemy that makes us fearful is not the final chapter of this story for you because God will raise you from the dead. He came, Jesus did, He died, God raised Him and He will raise us too in Christ if we are Christians. God delivered Jesus and He will deliver us fully and finally, Paul says, so we set our hope upon that and he will deliver us again. Paul is saying on God who raises the dead we set our hope not on our circumstances and so step one allow the affliction to surface your desire for self reliance. Two rely upon the God who raises the dead. Rely upon the God who sent Jesus to die for you and rise for you And trust in him only. Thirdly, allow others to comfort you. Paul then asks for them, help us by prayer so that many will give thanks. Paul says, I need you to be part of this. So do you hear what he's saying? When you're facing affliction, see yourself clearly, your desire for control, and the way that affliction strips it. Go to God with the pain, knowing that he's waiting to hear you, He's the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. And he's waiting for you to see that you are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Turn from yourself to God and finally ask others to come in and comfort you. Share the affliction with others. If you're one of the others that is being invited in, this passage gives us hints as how to do it. Firstly, allow them the dignity of their sorrow. Don't diminish it. Don't try and short circuit it. Allow the fullness of that sorrow to wash upon them because these are the sufferings of Jesus. We dare not diminish it. We must dignify these sufferings. Listen to the pain. Ask questions to bring out the pain and the sorrow. Secondly though, ask questions that help them stop looking at themselves and their circumstances, but to God and Jesus. Where do you see God and Jesus in this? How does the cross fit into this? Allow them to start turning through the cross to the God of all mercies and comforts. And then remind them. Give them verses. This particular passage is one of the great verses to share with them to comfort them. And be present. Be present with them. Let them see your heart, let them feel your words, let them experience your prayers. Then you can be this beautiful community. God will comfort us in all afflictions. God will use us to comfort others in any affliction. And God teaches us to process these afflictions by relying not upon ourselves, but by looking to the God of mercy and comfort, who comes to us as the God who raises the dead and allows his son to suffer on our behalf. And we will find comfort in times of great affliction. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this sober and yet amazing truth. May it be now that as we face our afflictions and help others, that we will be able to be a comfort to them You are the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and we thank you for that. Amen. Okay. I have time for just a couple of questions. I will answer the rest a little bit later. Um, Let me see. I'll go for the first one here. How do I move past affliction that happened in the past? I do not feel the pressure now, but there's induced fear from what happened in the past. Um, Yeah. Fear is pretty natural if you've been uh, hurt, particularly, I think, if you've been traumatized. So I think you need to do a bit of evaluation. Talk to some seasoned leaders who've experienced real affliction and real comfort. Talk to people who are experienced with counseling as well and have them triage you. You may need some professional counseling, but you also just need people to walk you through. Fear is normal. God is the God who can comfort you and can overcome your fear. Great question. How does God comfort us in the context of the sufferings and assaults against human rights happening in the world today? Um, how do we respond to these kinds? I, I get these questions all the time. It's, it's really a fascinating thing that we're not, we're, we're a local church in a global community, and it's really hard to live locally and think globally. Um, and so I think it's a great question. I don't have one answer for you. I think that Christians generally ought to be on the side of justice and mercy and uh, standing up for the rights of people all over the world. I think that's important. Um, But they should also be praying that the God of mercy will find a local way for those people who are experiencing those sufferings and persecutions to be comforted by the church that is local to them. And so one of the things we tend to do is we tend to pray and stuff for our particular church and then just kind of get very social justice and advocacy oriented in the way we think of the world. But God wants you to project this picture of the church to the world. And so pray for those who are experiencing uh, human rights violations, et cetera, say, in, in another country and pray for the church in that country to be a comforting beacon in the hands and the feet of Jesus in that country. Use the same lens. This will be my last one. Would someone who's a Christian who suffered from loss, parents, grandparents, etc., ever know the purpose of suffering in their lifetime? How is it meaningful sharing of Jesus' identity if you have no family left? I'm so sorry, whoever this is. There are depths of pain here that I have no right to speak on in one sense. But on the other hand, your pain is deeper and more real than any pain I have experienced. And yet the truth remains that Jesus died for you and God raised Him for you. And the Father who sent His Son to die and rise is waiting for you to come to Him. He is not unacquainted with your pain. He is the Father of mercies who wants you to come to Him and all of us to come to Him with the pain. And I ask you to reach out to seasoned Christians around you so that they can begin to comfort you. We don't have all the answers. Only God does but we can be his comforting presence, his feet, his hands and his mouth, in Christ's name. Let me pray for you and let's pray for all of us. Father, I thank you for the truth of these words and I pray that you would help us to help people in suffering this deep, to not be afraid to move towards people with suffering this deep. Maybe we just come in our silence with a meal or two and a prayer or two, and that's all we have, but it's something. Help us to help them. Help us to be a beautiful community, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.